Please turn in your Bibles today again back to Exodus uh, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Again, returning to the subject, of course, of societal life, living as a believer in this world. Remember, of course, the general theme. Remember those, those three, uh, three overarching uh, spheres of human existence, the family, the church, and the state. Uh, this time, we're really entering the sphere of the state. And, and again, trust you, remember, I'm just going to show this again to you, the connection between these thoughts the Sabbath ordinance in creation, uh, taking us to worship, and then the doctrines of the church, marriage, dealing with family life, children, uh, and then also in labor, uh, labor again in the creation ordinance has a societal benefit, and it depends again upon a state that is stable uh, and able to support and help people as they work the one for the other. And so I'm just, I argued last time, well, two weeks ago now, now, the very creation ordinance of labor presupposes community and society, thereby leading to inferences regarding the state. And so what you see in creation before the fall, you see worked out through the Bible in these various ways, church, family, society, or, or state. And so we saw last time again that uh, this matter of labor is a creation ordinance in terms of dominion and cooperation. We left off last time with God's will for man as revealed in the law. So we saw labor in the garden, but we see labor also in the law here. So let's read again Exodus chapter 20 just to uh, get us going again today. And you'll see labor in really in several areas in the law. Again, these three spheres, again, they are interwoven through the Ten Commandments. Of course, you see the worship in Commandments 1 through 4 primarily. But also when you come to the second table, you see lessons and instruction regarding family life, but also regarding the state. And yet there's overlap there. Of course, work finds itself in the fourth commandment, verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. There is the assumption that men who worship God are also men who work. They work these six days and they take the seventh day, as it says in verse number 10, as a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. We know that when you come to the Scriptures and the Gospels, there are some exceptions to that particular premise. Thou shalt not do any work does not exclude works of piety, in terms of Christian labor, the Levites in the Old Testament, or the pastor in the New Testament, works of piety, works of mercy, again, taking an animal out of the ditch, or in the healthcare realm, or the firefighting service, those works of, uh, of necessity, or works of mercy, and then also works of necessity. Again, the farmer must milk the cows on the Sabbath. There's a necessity there for uh, the well-being of the animal, and so there are examples of those things that are given, of course, in the gospel narrative also. But there is that general rule, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God in it, thou shalt not do any work. And that's to, again, impact the family. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth 
the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Again, it is very likely here we're seeing this merging of these spheres, the Sabbath day for worship, presupposing the necessity of work and labor. And even in that, there may well be, in verse number 10, overlapping implications to regards to society and the state. Nor thy stranger that is within thy gates may well be implying that the civil authorities had the responsibility to keep the Sabbath in their cities. The gates referring not to someone's gate around their tent, but the gate around the city and within the city precincts, there was to be the enforcing of Sabbath keeping. Now please, again, you've got to realize here, there's a distinction between the theocracy of Israel and the pagan nations. You do not see any instruction in the New Testament that there was to be this civil obligation brought about by the church. The church lived in an ungodly sphere. However, having said that, there is always the idea that if Christians have influence in the state, they will seek to promote Sabbath observance. So you understand the balance there. The state ought to, under God, encourage Sabbath-keeping. They should not discourage Sabbath-keeping. And so you see again in some of the federal societies, there may well be a moving towards enforcing Sabbath work. You see some of this in the, in the press at the present time, that there may be realms of federal government where they will require their workers to work on the Sabbath day. That must be resisted. We must stand against that. The Christian must have deliberative conscience to have that day set aside for worship. So these are things that will come to pass. The area of, again, the state and the church in conflict, and it will be in this area of keeping the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath. And so we see in the law some of these inferences and implications overlapping again. God's law for the family, for the workplace, for the state, and, of course, in regards to worship But again, this area comes up not only in the fourth commandment, but of course also in the eighth, thou shalt not steal. And we saw last time that in the eighth commandment, it requires in the language of our shorter catechism, the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. And the procuring and furthering the wealth of ourselves and others is by necessity involving work. You do not secure your outward estates by stealing, but you do so by work. So again, in the Eighth Commandment, there is the necessary inference of work, again, in the Ten Commandments. Another one, verse number 17, of course, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Even there, there's the implication that you work diligently, you seek to further yourself, And if you are able to do well, praise the Lord for that. But if you find yourself limited in some way in your financial prosperity, well, you must guard your heart from a covetous spirit. Furthering your own wealth or the wealth of your neighbor must be done in a spirit of contentment. You see, again, you find the Lord's will is so balanced. You imagine the idea 
work, further your own estate, the Eighth Commandment, do everything you can to make money and to prosper. You say, well, does that not sound like we should be materialistic and covetous? No, because the Bible's teaching regarding work is you're not working simply to feather your own nest so you can have all of these luxuries. You're working for the benefit of your family and society. The end whereunto you work is the glory of God in a society that honors the Lord. And so we're guarded against a covetous spirit and a materialistic spirit. And so I think in some ways, you look at the nation in which we live, there are many who will say to themselves, well, I'm not stealing. I'm so diligent and industrious in my work. God must like me and favor me. But yet they're possessed by violating the Tenth Commandment. They live continually with a discontented, covetous spirit. So the will of God is, is so balanced in these areas. And how we need the Lord's help for us to be equally wise in the will of the Lord. And so we've really taken the time, therefore, to establish in the Old Testament Scriptures the dignity of work. Work is not to be despised. It's not to be hated and resented. It is a dignified exercise in the will of God. And I say again to parents, please teach your children these principles. There is a generation around us who understand that work is not to be despised. And so you can teach them by your words. Make sure you also teach them by your example. That you're not the one in the house bemoaning and complaining every time you've got to do a day's work. But rather, you're glad and happy that God has given you work, and you will do so for his glory. But if that is the foundation, if you like, of the will of God regarding work, the dignity of work, today I want to take this further and think about the diligence required in work. Now, I move forward in that regard because that is the will of God for labor as revealed in the wisdom literature. So please turn to Proverbs, and we'll begin in Proverbs chapter 12. You're going to need fast fingers here today. We're going to turn uh, to several of the Proverbs because really what I want you to do in a way that we wouldn't necessarily do in a sermon, uh, I want you to feel the weight of the biblical evidence in the wisdom literature. This is not just some niche little area of wisdom living. Of course, the book of Proverbs, often referred to as part of the wisdom literature, it contains the wise sayings, mostly of Solomon, uh, but other men also in this collection of wisdom, proverbial statements. Foundationally, of course, is this idea that wisdom involves living in the fear of God. It's not so much being clever, but wiseness or wisdom is contrasted with folly. Folly is the unbeliever, the wise man is the believer, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. These are principles that should govern the God-fear in this world. How do you live as a fear of God in a fallen world? Here's how you live. Living in the fear of the Lord, seeking to please the Lord. And included in the wisdom of Proverbs are multiple references to work. But when you see them all together, you will see there is one word that clearly underscores all of the wisdom regarding work. And it is that word, diligence. Diligence. Turn, first of all, to some of the positive statements. Okay, there are positive blessings promised in the wisdom literature regarding work. Chapter 12, verse number 
Verse number 11. He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that falleth vain persons is void of understanding. The wicked desireth a net of evil men, but the fruit of the righteous yieldeth, or the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. And so verse number 11, you have this very obvious statement regarding the farmer, the agrarian lifestyle. If you till your ground, you get bread. You don't till your ground, there is no bread. You've got to till the ground to sow the seed, to grow the grain, to make the bread. It's really very obvious. You know, there's something profoundly sensible in the wisdom literature. Sanctified, divine common sense that is sorely lacking today. People presume that they can still make a living and go forward in this world by doing as little as possible. Uh, you go to the farmer in Lancaster County, they will laugh you in the face in that idea. And yet there are those, again, who, who are so far removed from the farming culture that they presume, well, I could just, I'll do enough to get by. And they presume they can grow and benefit. And so you get this idea, this very beginning of things, that it is those who will work who then receive the, the harvest. Then chapter 14, verse number 23 In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. A lot of talk. Oh, this week I'm going to do this, 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 this. Talk's cheap. Doesn't produce any fruit. And here they're saying, and the opposite of that, again, these are, are balanced, wise statements. There's profit, but it comes in light of labor and diligence. And that's where the profit comes in. Please be clear. So much of the illustrations here in Proverbs have to do with a, subsidiary, a subsistence life in a farming context. Undoubtedly, what you see in principle here applies to all of you in all the various spheres of your labors. Even those of you who are retired, you will still give yourselves to labor in certain areas. Some of you perhaps are involved in, in seeking to help with grandchildren. If you are not focused and diligent in raising your grandchildren, you will not do it to the glory of God. If you say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm looking after the grandkids this day. I'm just going to sit and watch the TV and they can run around the yard and the garden. Well, you're not investing in your grandchildren in that regard. But you can, you can nurture them and encourage them. And so there's labor and diligence in that regard. I'm just giving you an example. There are ways in which this applies way beyond the farmer. You know, I look at myself. I don't produce any growth in terms of a garden. I have no green fingers at all. But I understand that in my own pastoral ministry, there's a connection between labor and diligence and the outcome. If I am less industrious, there is less fruitfulness. I'm getting an echo in the back there, but I think these guys have started out. <laughs> so, let's look on. Chapter 22 of Proverbs, and the verse number 29. Here again, I'm just giving you these examples. We'll go forward these next few uh, very quickly. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. These are, you understand, when you read Proverbs, you're not reading absolute promises. 
You're reading general statements of wisdom. And sometimes people have overread the Proverbs and say, well, if this happens and this happens. This is an example, by the way, of one of the general principles here. How do you make yourself, again, useful and beneficial to society, even standing for kings? You're diligent in your business. Then you've got chapter 27. 27, verses 23 through 27. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds. For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation. This is another way. So you, you get in some of the Proverbs the blessing of initial labor leading to prosperity. But here you see the idea that when you come to no prosperity, you should not presume on its continuation. And so diligence is not just for the young person as they set out on life. Diligence is required for those who have made something of themselves, some stability, but they are required to continue that. Riches are not forever. Don't presume upon them. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks. Verse 25, the hay appeareth, the tender grass showeth itself, and the herbs of the mountains are gathered. The lambs are for thy clothing, and the goats are the price of the field. And thou shalt have goats milk enough for thy food, and for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. And so you see as you go on through this, your diligence does not just impact on your own life, but it has an impact upon the wider society. You provide for your family. You provide food and clothing for your household and also for the maintenance of the maidens. Again, just this wider, a larger view of family life than we may have in our own culture today. And then chapter 28, verse 19. And again, this again is a, a parallel to when we saw in chapter 12. He that tilleth his land, uh, not just some bread, but shall have plenty of bread. But he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. Enough said. Makes absolute sense in terms of the obvious things. It is just a mystery why the ungodly are so slow to think of the obvious. Well, if that's the promised blessings that come from diligence, then we find again a, a multiplicity of warnings to the sluggard. Back in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6. Verse number 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. Why do you think the ant is emphasized here? That's the question I want you to ask. Well, why do you think the ant's emphasized here in light of the, the language used here? Yes, It's, again, it's, it's the wisdom of understanding human nature. So if your boss is continually looking over your shoulder and seeing what you're producing, well, there's a tendency in human nature to, to work more diligently. But when you're on your own, you've all day to yourself, and no one's going to watch you at the end of the day, what's human nature? It is to become more sluggardly. So that's why it's used there. Then verse 9, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? 
You know, you're told, be at work at 7.30. And by the way, the boss will be there. You're there at 7.30. The boss is not there. Oh, the alarm's gone off. A little more sleep, a little slumber, a little fold of the hands to rest. You get the picture here. As a door turns on its hinges, so the slugger in his bed. That's the idea involved in this language here. Yeah, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to sleep. So, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. This idea of, of not having enough. Poverty coming through a sluggardly mindset. Chapter 10. Verses 4 and 5. Again, remember my purpose here is through the weight of the evidence here. This is not a small part. And people say, well, surely you're, you're, you're meant to preach the gospel. You're meant to be a pastor just bringing the word of God. Well, I, I'm, I'm meant to preach the whole counsel of God. And that involves this. And I suppose the gospel comes in this regard. If you are not being wise, you're being foolish. And if you're being foolish, you need a savior. This is the law of God that rebukes and chastises the ungodly in our society. They want to do nothing and earn lots. And what they need is the gospel to save them from all of their sins, including this area. So you've got to keep these things in mind. Chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son. But he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causes shame. Get the principle here, verse number 26 of the same chapter. As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to them that send him. And here you're seeing the principle from the other side. You have a job to get done. And you send someone to do a particular task, a job. They're commissioned in some way. Perhaps you're an employer and you want somebody to do a particular job for you. And they don't do it. Vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. Irritating. Distressing. Annoying. And so it, so it is, isn't it? In the case of if you've a sluggard uh, in, your, in your service. Then chapter 18. Then across chapter 18. I'm going to read these with very little comment. 18 verse 9. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Chapter 19 verse 15. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. 19. Or that's 19 verse 15. 20 and verse 4. The sluggard will not ply by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. 20 verse 13. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Open thine eyes and thou shalt be satisfied with bread. These are wonderful statements of wisdom. 21 verse 5. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of every one that is hasty only to want or to lacking. 21 verse 25. The desire of the slothful killeth himself, for his hands refuse to labor. He covereth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. That's a very important text. Again, I've tried to show you in the Ten Commandments how these things are interwoven through the various commandments. And I sought to show you the difference there is between laboring diligently and coveting. It's the slothful that is guilty of coveting. But the righteous, they're not guilty of coveting. They've enough to give. They are not lovers of money. 
but they've sufficient to then give and not to hold back to those who are in genuine need. Chapter 22 and the verse number 13. The slothful man saith, there's a lion without, I shall be slain in the streets. Remember the first time I heard a pastor preaching on that text, going through Proverbs and uh, the vivid picture. I'm not going to do the impression he did of a lion in the streets, but you get the idea. The man's hiding in his house. You know, you know much about the Panastillian region and Israel. There's very few lions in the streets. And the point here is this is an imaginary, pretended idea of something that is a danger. If, oh, if I go out today, the rain may fall upon my head. You know, you get the idea of this, this spurious nonsense. You know, the sluggard can make a dozen excuses in a dozen days to not go to work. So this is the idea that God is saying, this is not wisdom. This is not, this is not the fear and the honor of the Lord. 22, verse number 21. Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong. 24, let's go to 24. 24, verse... Let's skip across that one. 24, verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. Again, you see the parallels here? The sluggard's the unbeliever. The sluggard's the one who's not walking in the fear of the Lord. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof had broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Then one last reference, chapter 26. Verses 13 through 16. The slothful man saith, There is a lion in the way, a lion is in the streets. As the door turneth upon its hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. The slothful hideth his hand in the bosom. It grieveth him to bring it again to his mouth. He won't even feed himself. This is just, and the whole point of this, these are, I believe, written to us that they bring a smile to our faces. The Lord is deliberately bringing words to your attention that you would find yourself smirking and then realize, wait a minute, maybe I'm laughing at myself right now. And the Lord is bringing conviction upon our hearts as we see the absolute folly of the person given the sluggardiness. And of course, you see the core of it all, verse number 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. This is pride, ultimately. And why do we see pride in the action of the sluggard? Because in the garden before the fall, God says, labor. And the sluggard says, I don't need to labor. There's another way. There's a way of bypassing the need for labor. I can do it this way. That is arrogance. It's conceit beyond seven men. So the whole language of the wisdom literature is commending and encouraging a diligence in our work. Now, I've taken time to go through that. I, again, I wouldn't do that in the Lord's Day, that you'd be convinced in your mind about the necessity of this. So before we close for today, we should, if this is wisdom, and this is the law of God, 
we should see this manifested in the incarnate Son of God. He who keeps the Word of God perfectly, he who is wisdom incarnate, should have this very same attitude to life. And of course we do see that. Please turn to John chapter 4. We'll come back next week and we'll look at this matter worked out in the New Testament Scriptures. But I do want to finish here by looking at the example of our Lord and Savior. If you want a final admonition against the sluggardliness in work, then look no further than the example of Christ Jesus. A lazy person is not like the Savior. In whatever sphere of life, in whatever era they are not diligent, they are not not like the Lord Jesus. Verse number 34 of John 4, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Remember we saw in the Proverbs, the vinegar to the teeth, the smoke to the eyes, and the sluggard to him that sent him? Well, Christ, and I say this reverently, he causes no irritation to his heavenly Father. He is sent on a commission to be the Redeemer of God's elect, and he does so absolutely perfectly with full diligence, lacking in no areas of his responsibility, whereby he finishes the work that God sent him to do. He is the perfect example of the industrious laborer. And we praise God for his example. You see also then in John chapter 9 and verse number 4. John 9 and verse number 4. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Again, he's just given this idea that there is a responsibility that drives Christ's life. You know, you can, you can say to yourself, I'm going to work harder this week. But what is required ultimately for you to do that is a motivation of spirit that is for the glory of God. That you're driven by the impulse, I am going to glorify God in all that I do. And having that focused thought in your mind, then you're enabled to diligently labor, realizing that time is short, and you're going to do all you can for the glory of God as long as you can. Christ is, again, our great example in these things. And so as we sort of draw things to a close today, I want to ask you to think about this. In light of what we've seen in the Proverbs, and so let's say you're reading through Proverbs and you come to these texts with a sluggard, how are you going to apply that? What are you going to think in your own mind? What areas of application may there be in your thinking? Any thoughts in that regard? What What are you going to do in your own mind in this? George.
George, it's 10.40. That's a massive question, 10.40. <laughs> I'm just, that's a, it's a wonderful question, George, a very important question. The, so again, for those of you watching on this again, George asked a question that the Bible, some argue, seems to condone an enforced labor. And in terms of slavery, therefore giving some credence to the African-American slave trade here in the U.S. and also in the U.K., of course, also. Although uh, some of the UK coming from the more Caribbean islands also. And so saying, well, this is, this is encouraged in the Bible, certainly not condemned in the Bible. And George has rightly pointed out there are Islamic scholars who would argue against Christianity in that regard. Allah is not like Jehovah. And it's a very important thing to understand and to, to, to consider. I would say, fundamentally, in 1 Timothy 1, I think it's 1 Timothy 1, man-stealing is included as one of the sins of this world. So the fact you take somebody from their own place and put them somewhere else is absolutely condemned in the Scriptures. And that was the under thing that underpinned so much of the UK and in the US in terms of the enforcing of labor. They were stolen from their place. And there was man stealing involved. And then there was, again, the trading of those men as commodities. None of that is taught in the Word of God in no place whatsoever. What you do see in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, you do see people voluntarily entering into arrangements of labor. And it is essentially an employment contract. And it's a voluntary agreement for employment contract. You see also in the Scriptures of the Old Testament, you see nations that are subjugated by Israel, and they are then, as part of the procedure in that, they're then brought into laboring for Israel in that context. They, they work in that area. That is as opposed to death. There's this idea you can labor for the Lord's cause in the nation in that regard, and that is also commended of God. Again, that is not the that we find ourselves in the New Testament. That, again, is unique to theocratic Israel, and there's no way in which that overlaps into New Testament church life today. In the New Testament, again, we see, and we'll come to see it next week in Colossians, we'll come to see the instructions given to those who are in service in slavery in, in the Roman world. And there was, again, the recognition that that could not be easily overturned. And so they were told, this is how you live in that context. That does not condone it. It is really, how do you live as a believer in this situation? In the same way, you may be an unmarried person, and you desire marriage. Well, you cannot easily change that circumstance, perhaps. So therefore, how do you live in this regard? And that's what you see in the New Testament Scriptures. There's lessons and instructions regarding it. But I'd say absolutely, the key thing for me is nowhere in the Bible do you see any encouragement for what happened in the slave trade in either sides of the Atlantic. Nowhere at all. And so I have no difficulty in opposing that, that, that mindset. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's. I would say, myself, we would be all diligent. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's an important area because I think this does, it's almost like an acceptable Christian sin. There are some of these sins that we, as a believer, we would, we would never do that. You know, you're not, you're not going to go and rob a bank, are you? 
You know, you're, you're, you're not going to go and commit adultery. There are these things that we know kind of egregious, outlandish sins. But you know, we're all guilty, aren't we, of stealing from our employers at times? You know, realizing that, well, uh, I've just wasted, wasted several hours of my working day. Believe it or not, folks, I'm guilty of this as well. As a, if you like, an employee of this church, there are times when I come to the end of the day, I thought, I, I did not give myself wholeheartedly to the work today. I, I could have done so much better in my labors. And so what do you, what do you get to the end of the day? You, well, you, you come to the realization, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you that Christ's perfect righteousness covers even my transgressions of a lazy spirit, covers that from view, and I'm redeemed by Christ's blood. My sins are pardoned, and I'm accepted because of Christ's work. I come to that point in my application where I say, Lord, you've saved me. And then you begin a new day, and you say, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. Any command of God is impossible to natural man. And so you think to yourself, well, I can at least work hard. No, you can't. To work hard to the glory of God, you mutter the Spirit of God. I guess some ungodly people work very diligently, but they're doing it in violation of the Tenth Commandment. They're doing it from a covetous spirit. And so to do it to the glory of God with a right spirit, a right mind, needs the help of the Lord. And we'll, again, we'll come back to that next week as we finish up next week of the study on, on work. Okay, our time's gone. Thank you again for your engagement in this. Again, if you find yourself perhaps... You're in a point in your life where you're not involved in, in labor as you once were. Please pray for those who are in labor. Pray that our church families would live for the glory of God, that they give their all in this society, a society that's prone to a sluggardly spirit, and that we'd all know the Lord's help in these things. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, the clarity of your word, the overwhelming sense of compulsion that comes upon our souls and yet this conviction we feel we know that we're not what we ought to be oh lord help us to glorify thee in this area we pray for the children of the church our young people that they would not be conformed to this world in this area but they'd be transformed by the renewing of their minds even for those O oh lord who are in our homes we pray you would help help us O oh lord to encourage them and to push them on to do their very best to the glory of God. Help us again today. Bless the remainder of this day. May we be diligent in worship, diligent in the season of prayer this afternoon. Help us again to do all things for the honor of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.